It's go time. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Another quick kick's coming your way. Excited? We're finally getting the regular season underway. 2022 is here. It is exciting time. We uh, seems like the last few years it's always been a challenge as to what was going to start when, but we're on a regular schedule for 18 games for each team this season, and it's kicking off here in a couple of days or tomorrow, actually, as we record this. And it's the first time we're going to have a full season since 2019. And who among us going into that season when that Grey Cup was played thought, mm, ain't going to be playing 2020, short in 2021, and it'll take us three years to get back here. It's hard to believe. It's, it seems so surreal in a way that we went through all of that now that we're on a regular schedule. Once again, it's, it's good to have some normalcy back and kind of put all of that behind us and get ready for a regular full season. Any way we can enjoy football, we'll take it. It doesn't matter if they start a little bit later for my liking and keep us running into the late November. I'm going to champion that cause for as long as I have breath in these lungs. Let's play it when it's warmer. We'll get you there, Don. It's it's in the new CBA. They have that option moving forward. We'll see what happens over the next couple of seasons. Well, that's appreciated. The CBA now is in the books. It has been approved by everybody that was participating in the conversation. We're going to see what they call nationalized Americans on the field. I don't think that applies this year, but it does come in in 2023. It'll be interesting to see how that calculation comes to pass. I've had a conversation with uh, the Canadian Football League Stats Department they're still trying to come to terms with exactly what their role will be, what the CFL has completely in mind, because it is a very complex agenda. And not to diminish anyone's role in it, it's going to be difficult to get this enacted structurally the way that you feel that it will be exacting in its context for every game. It will, and we still have some unanswered questions about whether it's a game-to-game or a season-long average and, and how they calculate that. You, you situationally, when you get down to an end of a close game and you're trying to balance that ratio, it can be a real tough situation to be in and it could end up costing some teams. Sanctions are going to be the big question at the end of the day. If you go over the limit, what happens to you? And if there isn't any teeth in that, then this means nothing. If there is such as forfeiture, teams will be very aware of how to monitor the situation. Yeah, I I still don't know if forfeiture, uh, that seems extreme to me and I I can't imagine a situation where you're going to get a spot where somebody is going to have to forfeit a game unless they are grossly in violation of this rule, but certainly fines, loss of draft picks, perhaps you start to lower that percentage of how many plays you can use that American player and it drops from 49% down to 40%, etc. And you just kind of keep penalizing that way. I, I hope it never comes to a point of forfeiting a game based on a rule infraction like this. In 1959, the Saskatchewan Roughriders had to forfeit their final two games of the season because of a technicality in a sense. 
because the coach came back to quarterback the team because they were so decimated in the numbers of available players. They actually won the games, but they were forfeited. The Riders wound up 1-15 that season, worst in club history. And that's the last time that we've had a forfeiture based on a number of imports being on the field. It, we've come close since, twice. Rough Riders under Chris Jones and the Ticats last season came v- close. And the sanction is, according to the rules, if you do it, you forfeit because you're playing with ineligible players. However, in each context, the infraction was tiny. It wasn't a whole game's worth. So the CFL mitigated the response. And that's reasonable. But in this sort of scenario, I don't think you can mitigate if a team goes to 50, 51, 52. You have to hit them hard because what's the point of putting that number out there? And that's where I think you go in the next game and start to drop it to 48, 47, 46. It's a possibility. The uh, enforcement is always going to be a, a tough, tough thing. Kind of nugget that's in my mind here, if, if we start talking about teams pushing that number, it's easy to take away the following game, but what if it's the last game of the season? What if we go into game 18 and a head coach decides to just completely thumb their nose at that rule and say, we're putting that American player out for 80% of these plays and what are you going to do about it? They have to have accountants for any type of scenario that they're going to face. And there could be a myriad of them. Accidental, intentional, whatever the case may be, you've got to be prepared for it. Most talked about rule changes that we're going to see implemented. And we saw how it played out in the preseason, but but the hash marks are moved in four yards from each sideline. It is going to change the way defense approaches the game. The interesting thing is, even with the old hash marks at 24 yards in, they were still further inset from the sideline than the NFL were. Now they're even further inset than what the NFL has. It's just the function of the uh, size of the field, and especially the width in this case in the Canadian Football League. It's going to make defenses more honest because, as I've heard from several commentaries on the field side, which is the wider side of the field, teams would typically zone up over there and they wouldn't worry too much about a quarterback throwing it across the field to get 10 yards. That distance is now four yards shorter. If a quarterback rolls even five, it becomes even less yet. That makes them more honest. Of the rule changes, I still don't like the move to the 40 after field goals and for singles. I think that's it. And I don't like the kickoff after a score going back any further. I It should have stayed where it was. End of story. The hash marks, though, I think is going to be, and this is a real push from John Huffnagel. He was the one who, I believe, really championed this. He, he felt, and I agree with him, that the more you center the ball in the field, the more of the field to attack. 100%, and it's going to change defense, everybody behind that defensive line. The, the defensive line, it's not going to change a lot, but you've got linebackers now having to cover a little bit more space on that side. You've got defensive backs with more room to cover, and it's really going to wreak havoc on the safeties. As you said, it's going to really eliminate that ability to to cheat and kind of pile up the defenders on that narrow side now that the wide side of the field is a lot more viable of an option. 
I think it's great for some of those post receivers that we see run routes again and again and again all game long and rarely get a look. This is going to open that up for them to get some more catches. It will. It, it'll open it up on the boundary side, which is the short side of the field, because now you're not stopped by that sideline so quickly. You've got an extra four or five paces before it appears. And that is huge because then you can change your angle of attack and a quarterback can use that against the defense. It's going to be, if anything in football, offense and defense is an arms race. Every time something changes for the offense, the defense is scrambling to figure out how to stop it. Sometimes the defense gets the lead and the offense is scrambling, trying to figure out how to defeat that. So there's this constant tug going back and forth between the two. But right now, the incentive, the way the rules came out with this especially, we're pushing offense forward. And you have to, as a offensive coordinator, embrace this. You have to find a way to make this work for you. Whether the running game gets a little wider or if you want, uh, quarterbacks can roll a little bit more, make the defenses pay. You know the the opposite side of the equation is we're probably going to see more blitzes because they don't want that quarterback to sit there and have time to pick you apart. I'll be watching also how it affects sideline plays on that boundary side. Now that they've got a little bit more space to operate, how does that defensive back cover? Can he still take away the the field and leave the sideline exposed. It's, it's, I think, going to be a lot easier for some of those receivers to make those catches down the sideline and not necessarily toe-dragging trying to keep in the field to play. Anything like that in terms of rule change, I'm in favor of. I, I've got an interview with Steve Daniel, who is a CFL stats guru, but he has a new title, and he ha- it's a lot more involved than what's being asked of him is a lot more involved. He's going to talk about some of this stuff, and I think it's well worth listening to. And that will be, I believe, our next podcast that drops. If we look at the push for offense, the reaction has been scoring is falling down a little bit. Milt Stiegel, I thought, had a great point. If the offense isn't scoring, don't change the rules, change the offense. And I kind of like that attitude because you got to take some ownership for failure. If you don't learn from your mistakes, you're going to do them over again. And and that kind of comes back to what Rob Vanstone has said on this podcast as well, is offenses have gotten so conservative over the last few years of running short routes, and they've really taken away some of those exciting deep balls. We know famously last year, early in the season, the Rough Riders really struggled on connecting on deep passes. Duke Williams came in and helped kind of turn the tide on that a little bit. But even you look at the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in previous seasons, they had Darvin Adams as that deep threat and he was completely neutralized in that 2021 season. So I I agree if they are that concerned about scoring, they've made a couple of tweaks on the field dimensions right now to help that. And it's now up to those offensive coordinators to get the right people in the right place and really start to push back on those defenses. You can't tell me that the talent pool has lessened in the CFL because we have some amazing, outstanding players that perform at unbelievable levels. That's not the issue. I agree with Van Stone. The conservatism in coaching has just gotten a little bit too focused on 
three to five, three to five, three to five. That's what they want all the time is three to five yards. And that's an NFL approach. In the CFL, you got to attack down the field. If you don't make that defense respect the deep ball, they're just going to f- load the box, as they say. In a way, it's reminiscent of the NHL in the mid-90s when they started playing that neutral zone trap and took all the offense out of the game. It was a smart way for the coaches that figured that out, and the New Jersey Devils were successful in winning Stanley Cups playing that style. However, for the fan experience and the people that are paying the bills, it's maybe not quite as exciting. And I I can certainly appreciate a good defensive football game as much as I can an offensive game, but I can understand from a a casual fan standpoint or somebody who's just getting involved in the game, you want to see some excitement out there and, and maybe it's not as exciting for those guys to watch a middle linebacker get 15 tackles and two sacks in a game as it is for somebody like me. Offense is more than scoring. Offense, if you're a fan, is about big plays, exciting plays, amazing catches, amazing running plays. There's a whole myriad of of elements that make up a great offense, and it doesn't necessarily result in a 50-point total at the end of the day on the scoreboard. What I want to see more of, and I'm hoping with the hash marks moved in, is more pressing down the field. Get the ball beyond 15 yards. I remember one episode we were talking about some of the old records of quarterbacks from the 80s and 90s, and some of them had horrible completion percentages, but the number of yards they were throwing for was incredible. You look at Matt Dunnigan and Danny Barrett in their record-setting games, they didn't go 25 for 27 they were taking chances and throwing balls down the field and there's receivers getting 200 plus yards receiving in the game. And that was how they were moving the ball. They were taking their shots. Matt Dunnigan sets the record for passing in a game with over 700. Alfred Jackson is the beneficiary of about a third of that. Where are those days now? Why don't we see a quarterback go off for 500 yards? This is the thing that I I think functionally... Offensive coordinators have got to get their creative juices going. And here's your opportunity. You've got an 18-game schedule. You've got all this opportunity with the hash marks moved in. You get better starting positions after scores. Do something with it. And case in point, last year we had Zach Kolaris as the most outstanding player in the league as a quarterback. And I think he maybe had one or possibly two games where he threw for over 300 yards. Back in the 90s, you would have a race among the quarterbacks to see who would get the 6,000 yards in a season first. Multiple quarterbacks were in that race. We haven't seen that in a long time. We need that. Somebody out there is going to be able to put up those numbers. Let's just go for it. That's why I think this season, I titled one of our podcasts, CFL 2.0, the real CFL 2.0, post-pandemic, This is where the CFL becomes what it's going to be for the next 50 years. This is how it redefines itself. And it's time to get some of those star quarterbacks back up into that caliber. I think Bo Levi Mitchell was the last one that threw for 5,000 yards, and that was a pretty big deal when that happened. So it needs to be more than norm and not an amazing feat when it happens. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, 
We also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. There'll be a lot of guys that play in this game that won't make our team, so it's a it's a big game. That's a hard day Saturday for you. Yeah. Hopefully it's real hard. That means we got a good team. Play their game. Yeah, show us show us why you belong on this team. Give us everything you got. It's been a tough few weeks for players on CFL rosters as they try to make the cut. And as you've heard from Rough Rider head coach Craig Dickinson, it's never fun. Last Saturday, teams had to trim their rosters to get to their 46 plus their practice players. It's never easy to be told that you're not making the team, and it's never easy to be the person telling that player that you're not making the team. Football is a business, ultimately, and you have to provide the best product that you can on the field, and that requires the best players that you feel fit the mold of your identity of the team. I was kind of going through the rosters and seeing who was cut, and there wasn't really a lot that jumped off the page at me, but a couple of them that I'm going to throw out to you here, I think the biggest surprise for me was seeing the cut of BJ Cunningham, wide receiver, uh, formerly of the Montreal Alouettes. He was picked up by the Ottawa Red Blacks. Last year, he had 34 catches, 474 yards, competing four catches with Eugene Lewis and Jake Wenicke. So uh, kind of the third wheel in that Montreal receiving core, but I thought it was an opportunity for him to really step up in Ottawa. Also Ottawa releasing Tremaine Washington, who had a great year in Edmonton last year, and that was a bit of a stunner as well. Cunningham will land somewhere. I think there's going to be a need for him, whether it's Winnipeg, maybe back in Montreal. It There's always an opportunity, I think, for a person, especially with that size, He's, he's a big receiver. He's a big target, and quarterbacks love that. I guess the surprise for me is that Emmanuel Arsenal made the Elks roster. I shouldn't be so surprised, but he hadn't played football in the last couple of years. It looks like the Elks fans are pretty excited to have him. It was great to see somebody kind of reignite their career in that regard. Um, just to kind of get back to Ottawa, I am with you on Tremaine Washington. I kind of had him in my notes here as well, and I just wonder... We know that Ottawa really went hard on free agents in this last offseason. They signed a ton of players, and this might have just been the numbers and and the salaries that just didn't quite work out in the favor of these two players. I think they're both capable CFL players in their positions with a lot more to give, and they might have just kind of fell victim to the numbers a little bit. That's entirely possible. When a team signs as many FAs as the Red Blacks did in the offseason, we were often musing about that with the Argonauts when they went on their bonanza to get free agents a couple of years ago. We thought, is there going to be enough room at the table for everyone to, to eat? Here, the Red Blacks cut these players. that they, they did it now gives them the opportunity to sign with somebody else fairly early in the season if need be. I'm, I'm still thinking that Cunningham of the two is probably the more likely to get a job right away. And... We talked about B.J. Cunningham playing with the Alouettes last year, and they had signed Quan Bray as a receiver, almost as kind of a replacement for B.J. Cunningham, and he ends up on the chopping block. Similar numbers to Cunningham, 35 catches, 481 yards last year. I know he bounced around a little bit, and but it's still kind of surprising that a guy like that doesn't land on a starting day roster. You pointed out 
there's a salary cap and there are numbers to be attached to anybody's value. Whether you fit in the mold is one thing, whether you fit in the budget could be quite another. And speaking of budgets, with the two Canadian quarterbacks, the BC Lions had a little bit of wiggle room in their salary cap. Antonio Pipkin was cut by the Toronto Argonauts and very quickly snapped up by the BC Lions as a little bit of security in that quarterback position. Just listening to Mike O'Shea discuss this, I think teams are moving toward having three quarterbacks on their game day roster, in part because the CFL has allowed you to put two out at once if you want to do that. And you just don't want to be caught short if someone gets injured on a play where they're acting like a receiver, then you really could be in a in a tough spot as the Red Blacks were last year and having a receiver become your quarterback. Yeah, and like I said, with a couple of unproven quarterbacks in BC, Antonio Pipkin isn't, I would say, a bona fide starter in this league by any means, but he does give you that little bit of experience and, and some security in that quarterback position if he needs to jump in and play. Pipkin has a strong arm. He 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 had some standout games in Montreal, but he didn't string a bunch of them together. Maybe in BC, as a backup, he can really help that team along. You spoke of Coach Mike O'Shea, and one thing that jumped out at me for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers is it appears that Mark Leggio is their go-to in all aspects of the kicking game as they've moved Ali Murtada to the practice roster. And we know the kicking game was the Achilles heel of the Bombers last season. Sergio Castillo came in and filled that hole for them and was really, really important in winning that Grey Cup. He has jumped over to the Edmonton Elks, and now it's time to see what Leggio can do in his second season. The kicking game is a very, very finicky universe. Confidence plays into it more than mechanics. And if your head's in the right spot and you feel good about what you're doing, you can have a standout season. Liram Hairalahu is still an FA out there. Does he have any juice left in the tank to uh, to sign with anybody in the CFL? I know he's still trying to apply his trade down in the NFL, but th- those pickings are getting slimmer and slimmer. And the kicking game is one thing we didn't talk about when we were discussing moving in the hash marks. It's going to change the angles a little bit. And we know that some of the kickers seem to struggle with those wider hash marks. So maybe moving things in is the cure for what was ailing Winnipeg's kicking game last season. We tease that right away the CFL is going to be into its 2022 season. Games start on Thursday with the Montreal Alouettes in Calgary to take on the Stampeders. The Stampeders looked like dynamite in the preseason. One would think everything is going great there, except quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell struggled in the preseason. He did, but all reports seem to indicate that his shoulder has healed up nicely. He's throwing the ball well. I always take the preseason with a grain of salt. We didn't even see last year's MOP take a snap in preseason this year. Zach Kolaris didn't dress for either of their preseason games and they don't seem to be too worried about it. So I don't know if I'm a Stampeders fan if I'm in panic mode with Bo Levi Mitchell yet. The way he played against BC, he looked a little bit rusty. If you're Calgary and you got Jake Mayer in the wings and if Mitchell struggles 
early in the season. How long do you think, A, the fan base will wait, but mainly Dave Dickinson? How long is he going to sit back and let Mitchell work it through? Mitchell has earned that. Whether he gets that is another question. It's almost a situation like we saw the Hamilton Tiger Cats go through over the last couple of seasons with Dane Evans and Jeremiah Mazzoli fighting for playing time. It's really going to depend on how competitive this West Division is. If Calgary struggles out of the gate again this year like they did last season, we've seen what Jake Mayer is capable of. So it might be a situation where they throw a couple of starts his way to try to turn the tide. Jake Mayer had more than one 300-yard game last year with the Stampeders. There's some moxie about him that now Mitchell is a very fiery quarterback. He is a leader. He brings that dynamic to the Stampeders. Now facing the Alouettes, this ought to be interesting because, of course, Montreal has its own quarterbacking issues. Vernon Adams named the starter for Thursday's game, but he did not look particularly good in his last preseason game against the Red Blacks. Yeah, you talked about Bo Levi Mitchell throwing interceptions. Vernon Adams threw three picks in that game. And then Trevor Harris goes in and immediately throws an interception as well. So that doesn't bode well for the start of the season in Montreal. And if there's a Jekyll and Hyde quarterback in the league, it's Vernon Adams Jr. He can be lights out one week and then the next week really struggle to put up completions. What's more concerning to me is how he reacted when he left the field after the last pick and they sat him down on the bench to get him out of the game. He, he looked a little despondent. And you can't have that coming from your leader. You, your leader has to rise above. And this is, if you want to be the man in Montreal, you have to overcome. And with Trevor Harris, we know his track record He has won a Grey Cup. He can put up numbers. Not as a starter. (laughs) Not as a starter. Uh, Again, somebody who can be lights out one week and not so great the next. So for Montreal, they have to hope that these guys fire on all cylinders at the right time and that the other guy is ready to step up if they start to struggle. We talked about this last year with Dane Evans and Jeremiah Mazzoli and Hamilton. I'm not a fan of flipping quarterbacks back and forth. The side on one run him and let's see where he takes you in this race. If he falters, that's when you make the move, but you've got to have the coaches instill confidence in that person and the team will rally to that person as well. But if the coaches are second guessing and Kahari Jones after that game against Ottawa was very hesitant in naming his starting quarterback, that's very unlike Kahari, which means that he was rattled too by what he saw. We've got quite the quarterback situation in Montreal, not just with the the two quarterbacks in Trevor Harris and Vernon Adams, but Kahari Jones and Anthony Calvillo, also with a fountain of knowledge, both of those guys. So it would be very difficult to watch a quarterback struggle in Montreal with all of that support around him. Calvillo has been a coach with the Alouettes before. He's back. He has a wealth of knowledge. And the one thing that Anthony Calvillo There may have been a storm going on around the team, but Calvillo himself was very, very controlled. That's maybe what he's going to have to instill into Adams, trying to get him to take it down a notch and just chill. Mistakes happen. And he's kind of the the antidote, if you will, to Kahari Jones, because Kahari's a very energetic, passionate head coach as he was a quarterback, very fiery. So now you've got somebody like Anthony Calvillo that can be that calmer head 
and maybe try to smooth those waters a little bit. Stampeders are minus 3.5 favorites at home. That's not a huge endorsement. The Alouettes had that amazing game with uh, Vernon Adams and company when they stole one in Calgary. (laughs) I wonder if that's playing in people's minds. I'm with the Stampeders on this one. I think they'll cover the spread. The Stamps, to me, in preseason, went into Edmonton and owned them. Beat up on the Lions in Calgary. A lot of people are thinking they're a middle, third, second-ish team in the West. I think the Stampeders defensively have come around. Their offense quarterbacking is going to be maybe the only question mark they have. If it comes together and Mitchell starts playing like he did in 2018, the Stampeders are going to be formidable, and it would start with Montreal as being their first victim. I am one person who thought I was seeing the decline of the Calgary Stampeders in 2021 when they got off to that rough start, but they turned things around and were right in the mix at the end of the season, and I have no reason to doubt them this year. I firmly believe that Calgary covers the spread in this one against Montreal as well. Friday night football, 25th anniversary. The Red Blacks from Ottawa are in Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers. The one matchup that we did not see in 2021. We're getting it for two weeks in 2022. Ottawa is plus 9.5 going into Winnipeg. It sat there for quite a while. Not a lot of faith in Ottawa, but given that they're in Winnipeg, it's understandable. An emotional night for the Bombers. It's their Grey Cup banner unveiling. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance that goes into that ceremony, and that can really affect the way the team plays a little bit as well. They've gone away from the traditional Grey Cup rematch in Week 1 this season. They're giving us the Red Blacks versus the Bombers, as you said, back-to-back to make up for not having them play at all in 2021. I believe Winnipeg wins this game, but... I also think the much improved Ottawa Red Blacks cover that nine and a half point spread. Ottawa's defense showed well in preseason. That were a lot of moving pieces that came together to get that going. Mike Benavidez likes to kind of let you grind it out against that defense. But they're starting to show, especially in preseason, that they're going to flex a little bit more. They're going to come with more blitzes. The key for Ottawa to win in Winnipeg is Ottawa has to get out to a lightning fast start. They have to catch Winnipeg when they're emotionally sort of bereft after the huge ceremony right at the start of the game. Because that crowd's going to be jacked. You've got to pounce right then and there. One other thing to watch is I think Ottawa has one of the best defensive secondaries in the league going into this season on paper. We'll see how it comes to fruition on the field, but... If there was a weakness in Zach Kolaris's game last year, he had a tendency to underthrow some of those deep balls, and this might be an opportunity for those Ottawa DBs to get a couple of picks early and turn the tide of the game. Mazzoli does well in the West when he comes out to play. This is a new offense for him. Paul Apolice, first time back for him against his old team. He might have a few wrinkles that they'll throw at the Blue Bombers' defense to see if they can catch them. The question in my mind is not whether Winnipeg wins or loses, is do they cover? 
9.5 is huge. But if Winnipeg gets off to a decent start, it's not unthinkable that they could win by 14 or 18. And it wouldn't be an embarrassment to the Red Blacks because that team is still in a work-in-progress mode. They are, and we saw bigger spreads with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers last year when they were dominating the league week in and week out. It's just for a first game of the season, nine and a half seems like a pretty big spread in my opinion. It shows a lot of faith in that Winnipeg defense. They are a year older. Do they have the same fire? Saturday, doubleheader. First, we have the team that lost in that 2021 Grey Cup, the Hamilton Tiger Cats in Saskatchewan, to take on the team that lost in the West Final. Rough Riders are minus 2.5 favorites. Saskatchewan, as they've done since Craig Dickinson has been head coach, did not win in the preseason. It hasn't held them back in the past. The Tiger Cats are a different animal. Dane Evans is now the starting quarterback. He brings intensity and enthusiasm. Big question mark in Saskatchewan is they've got a great linebacking core. What are they going to get from their front four on defense? And the loss of Ed Ganey, how is that going to impact that secondary? Of all the games to start the season, this is the one that I'm probably looking forward to the most. I believe both of these teams lost in a heartbreaking fashion last year and are coming in with a lot to prove. They want to prove that they belonged in those Western final and that Grey Cup game. We know the Grey Cup is in Regina this year, so the riders have some extra motivation there. And I think they both are going to come out to prove a point. I'm leaning towards Hamilton, not just covering the spread in this one, but winning this game outright. I think this is an, an upset this week that Hamilton comes into Regina and steals one. Saskatchewan on offense has to kill Williams for the entire season. That should help with the deep threat. They've played some really, really close contests with the Ticats the last few years, and the Ticats have come up a little bit short each time. It may be that they're due, that this team that didn't win the Grey Cup is going to beat the team that didn't win the West Final in that team's home opener. It's a big season for Cody Fajardo this year. He's been the starter now for a few seasons, and, and with the Grey Cup at home, this is his chance to lead this team. If he doesn't get it done this year, I don't know what the future looks like for Cody Fajardo in Regina. Fajardo is not under contract beyond this season. It's an audition tape, I guess, but it's going to be a tough one because look at where you have to finish. You have to finish at home in November with the Grey Cup. That's a huge pressure point. That's a lot to carry from week one. They did it in 2013. They went all the way to the championship, but they didn't finish first that season. They had to go to Calgary to come back to play in the Grey Cup. They may be finding that route again. I'm leaning towards the Ticats, a more veteran team. Final game of the night, and this is the huge question mark. Two teams that finished fourth and fifth in the West last year, the Edmonton Elks and the BC Lions. The Lions have made Nathan Rourke their starter. Talk all over the place that he could be another Russ Jackson, and we haven't seen that in 50-plus years in the CFL. And that is pretty lofty standards to get to. Lions are minus 3.5 favorites in this game. What I caution everybody about the Elks is 
when Chris Jones came to Saskatchewan his first year and gutted the team, they went three and 15. This one is the biggest question mark game, as you alluded to. I, I'm quite confident that Ottawa is going to be much improved from where they were last year. These two teams have nowhere to go but up as well, but I don't know how much they are going to be able to climb this year. I have them finishing once again fourth and fifth in the West. I'm giving the edge to Edmonton in this one. I I think Chris Jones has a couple of tricks up his sleeve that's going to pull this one out. I would absolutely love to see Nathan Rourke become the next next Russ Jackson. It would be a, a huge win for the league to have a marketable star Canadian quarterback. And it looks like they are giving him the opportunity to do so in BC this year. And I certainly hope that he is capable and lives up to the task. But week one, I think the Edmonton Elks go in and steal this one. The Lions are opening the upper bowl at BC Place, something that hasn't been done in a while. Tells you that interest in this game, and especially the BC Lions, is starting to grow in Vancouver once again. BC, with Rourke, I think has the answer to Edmonton. Edmonton has is almost in the same boat as Ottawa in a sense. This is a group of people that haven't really played together. And unlike Ottawa, where they went out and got veteran free agents, Edmonton is starting from scratch. There's a lot of new faces that are on that squad. A little tidbit of trivia. As we record, it's been 970 days since the Elks have won a home game. Their first chance will be at the 980-day point when they host Saskatchewan. Do I hear a thousand? That would take us into July. (laughs) That would hurt if Edmonton was not winning at home again because they went through a lot of pain last year going winless at home. In their franchise history, which is a long and, and glorified run of Grey Cups and and championships, that had to hurt super hard. One thing I will say about both these teams, and you kind of mentioned with BC opening the upper bowl, is there is some interest and and some excitement with both these teams. We've got new ownership with the BC Lions. We've got Victor Kui as the new president of the Edmonton Elks. They had over 30,000 people at Commonwealth for a preseason game in order to raise money for Ukraine a fantastic initiative and a great result. And there seems to be some real excitement in both of these cities for CFL football again. Lions defense is underrated. Stephen McAdoo as an offensive coordinator is underrated for the Elks. Interesting matchup. You're going to see a lot of running by the Elks as they get this season started. They have James Wilder in their backfield and they plan to use him. BC at home with that crowd, they're going to be amped and pumped. The Lions not only win, but cover. And the Lions have one of the most exciting receiving cores in the league as well. Lucky Whitehead, Javon Katoy, Brian Burnham. That's a real dynamic trio of of receivers out there. So it bodes well for them. This is, as I said, Nathan Rourke's chance to shine. He certainly has the receiving core that he can be successful with. And this is his opportunity. BC's woes on offense were directly attributable to their offensive line and the play that it had. If that offensive line can come around and Rourke gets time, BC's going to be fine on offense. 
before we get away and get this season going, let's run down how we think universe is going to be in the standings. <laughs> let's look at the East first. Heath, who do you think is going to own the East? For any wrestling fans out there, for as Ric Flair famously says, to be the man, you got to beat the man. And right now, I think the Hamilton Tiger Cats are still the man in the CFL East. I'm predicting an 11-7 and season will win the East for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. The much-improved Ottawa Red Blacks are going to finish 9-9 and and second overall in the East with a similar record to the Montreal Alouettes, also at 9-9, and but Ottawa is going to win that tiebreaker. And right behind them is the Toronto Argonauts at 8-10. and So three wins separating top to bottom in the East this year, but it's still Hamilton's division. I put Toronto in first at 11 and 7. I've got Hamilton nipping at their heels 10 and 8, Montreal 9 and 9. It's almost like a repeat of of last year. Ottawa though is vastly improved but not improved enough to make the playoffs. I put them at about 6 wins. Pat sent in his. He's picking with you Hamilton 11 and 7. He goes Toronto 10 and 8, Montreal. We all agree Montreal's a Midland team 9 and 9 and Ottawa will be 5 and 13. Out West, this is as compressed as the East is in terms of how close it could be because we've only got two wins between first and third. I think the West could be just as crazy. Yeah, I had a really hard time with Winnipeg's record in the West. I'm still picking them to win the division. I've got them at 13 and 5, but I'm waffling a little bit and leaning more towards 12 and 6. I just, I don't see them being quite as dominant this year as they were in 2021. I think age is starting to creep up there a little bit. That's going to cost them a game or two. But I've already put it in print, so I've got to stick with it. Winnipeg wins this one at 13-5. and five. Calgary right on their heels at 11-7. and seven. Saskatchewan 10-8. and eight. So the top three teams from last season, just a little bit different order between Calgary and Saskatchewan. Edmonton 6-12 and 12 and BC 4-14. Four and 14. As I said, both teams have nowhere to go but up but I think it's baby steps for both of them this season. I'm putting Calgary in first in the West, 12-6. and six. Winnipeg at 11-7. and seven. And I'm picking Calgary because I, what I saw from them at the end of the 21 season, they were starting to get it together on defense. They've got a, a good running back in Kadeem Carey. Even if their quarterback situation isn't completely settled on Bo Levi Mitchell, Jake Mayer is a great backup to have. The Stampeders have more than enough tools with Reggie Bagleton and Devaris Daniels catching the ball. They they could be dynamite this year. Winnipeg, 11-7, and seven, age is my question mark for them. And can that defense sustain? They had that amazing run in the fourth quarter last year. Can they do that again? If they can, then maybe they win first. The Rough Riders are the team that I think takes the step back. They're going to be 9-9. Nine and nine. They have a lot of deletions on defense and I think it's going to take time for them to gel on offense. Dakeel Williams is huge. How do you work everybody in? This is the problem that they had last year. They didn't know what to do with William Powell. They didn't know what to do with Shaq Evans. They seem to be at cross purposes and Jason Moss tends to like to throw the ball. So if you're a running back with the Rough Riders, you better know how to block. I'm putting BC at 7-11. and 11. They're going to make strides, but they're not going to be good enough to make the playoffs. And Edmonton is going to come in in fifth with a 6-12 and 12 record, a vast improvement. 
twice as many wins as they had last year. Believe yet that they're going to have it all together. Uh, questions at quarterback still remain there. As a team, it's going to take time, and Chris Jones will move parts around quite a ways through the season until he gets what he wants, and that could cost them a few games. And if anybody's keeping score, Pat's picks for the West Division, he's got Winnipeg at 13 and 5, Saskatchewan in second at 11 and 7, Calgary 10 and 8, BC 7 and 11, same as, as your prediction on that one, Don, and Edmonton rounding it out at 5 and 13. Some good news ESPN is picking up every CFL game, all 86, which is huge. That, they're also working on broadband across the world and bringing all of that together to get more eyes on the league throughout the planet. The other big announcement was that Genius Sports Now was coming online. The fan participation side of the equation, the uh, league has started with three initiatives, and this is going to be this uh, new CFL game zone uh, with preseason futures. Uh, I've already participated in all of this. It's kind of... the. They're still going to have the pick'ems, pick the winners. They're still going to have the roster where you pick seven players and you compete against the uh, rest of the nation. But the, uh, the the big change was the preseason. That's where you sort of make predictions about what types of things you might see out of the season. And I thought that was a neat little idea. Again, this is the cusp. This is the very beginning of how this is going to play out. And this is starting to answer some of those questions that we've had for the last six months as to what exactly Genius Sports brings to the table. We knew fan engagement and how we interact with the games was going to be a big change. And we're starting to see some of this come into play here now. Seen with betting, we're seeing all of these uh, different uh, apps that people can use, DraftKings, uh, Caesars, MGM, uh, BetRegal. There's tons of them out there that are available and it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out. Because remember, the players get part of the revenues down the road. So this baseline of 2022 is huge to determine exactly how these calculations come about. And as this stuff all comes in line, we're going to get a very good idea. The genius sports thing, they've went with the tried and true for the most part. That's only the tip of the iceberg. We've mentioned not only is the CFL more invested in this, but genius sports is very invested in this. And I believe the CFL is going to be the proving ground for Genius Sports in how they present themselves to other leagues in the future. They're, they're going to try some new things with the CFL, see what works, see what doesn't, and it's going to give them the ability to get better at what they do. Genius Sports is a partner with the CFL. They make money if the CFL makes money. They are going to be heavily invested. And the one thing that's really nice about the Canadian Football League is that it is open to try new things. It was the first to bring in the virtual yard markers on the field. They've been using now virtual logos, team logos at center field, so that there isn't so much paint on the field. And they've been using virtual ads as well. This is a lot of innovation that's coming out of Canada. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again at the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.